start the fire It was always burning since the world's been turning We didn't start the fire It was always burning And it's the end of the world as we know it Welcome to This Is How We Die, a podcast about cities, infrastructure, natural disasters, and how you can survive. I'm Megan. And I'm Megan. And we're here today with another In Between Seasons mini-episode. And what are we covering today, Megan? What actually happened to Hurricane Katrina? Oh, this is a good time. Hurricane Katrina, everybody knows it. Hurricane Katrina hits New Orleans. Devastation. Is that the full story? Um, no, it is not. Uh, to start with, everybody thinks of Hurricane Katrina as being New Orleans's hurricane. And the fact is, it's not. It, hurricane Katrina hit Mississippi. It hit Mississippi and devastated it. It only sideswiped the city of New Orleans. And so what was it about Hurricane Katrina and New Orleans? What combined them in our minds? Oh, it's a little something I'd like to call infrastructure failure. failure. Which we should not sound so excited by, but we always, always are. Yes, so this this disaster was one of those other disasters that was entirely avoidable had we not come across our greatest nemesis, which is deferred maintenance and infrastructure built on poor soil. Yeah, I mean, this is just us talking again about um, how we we use infrastructure to build cities in places that they're not meant to be. And then we're mad when that infrastructure fails and the city um, bears the brunt of a natural or otherwise um, occurring disaster. And we know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Megan's, how would any of, anybody have ever foreseen that a disaster or a storm of this size would hit the city of New Orleans or the New Orleans wouldn't have the proper soil or geography to withstand a storm of that? Well, I would say that that story happens not in August of 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hits, but all the way back in 1699. 1699, that's right. So in 1699, BNV and his brother, BNV. Uh, Good Village and his brother, BMV. Uh, <laughs> we can just call him, yeah. We call him Good Village. I just like translating it to like butchered English. Pig, pig French. The story that's kind of known is that the royal engineer of Louis XIV, Sir Blonde de la Tour, <laughs> what an unfortunate name, banned from you. advised against settling on this area of land because of the terrain. However, I don't know if I would trust Sir Blonde de la Tour. Oh, yeah. You know blondes aren't very smart. So he said it was a bad idea because he said the train wasn't good for it. This was not abided by. And so the way you have to think about New Orleans, if you think about it, is that it's... um, So if you think of New Orleans, it's below sea level. And then there's the Mississippi River, and it runs the whole way through the city. And over thousands of years, it's... It's always overflowed. Um, Flooding is pretty natural to the Mississippi. For most rivers, overflowing is a natural part. It's actually part of the ecosystem, and and by overflowing it, it brings a lot of nutrients into the soil and makes it so fertile. Yeah. Um, And it also deposits primarily sand and silts. And so um, these deposits formed a ridge uh, paralleling the river channel boundaries, and these are known as, like, natural levees. So these are, like, the, the natural 
river seawalls that kind of prevent the area from flooding. So that's kind of a fast and dirty version of their geography and terrain. Yeah. They also create higher ground that doesn't appear to be underwater that is appealing to people who are thinking, should I build a city here? And their, like, blonde architect is like, yeah, don't do that. And they're like, what do you know, blondie? And they do it anyway. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't be blonde if you want us to trust you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We're just two brunettes shading the blondes pretty hard here. <laughs> and uh, so they built the city anyway, and they called it Crescent City. Um, along the higher ground. The city had the Mississippi on one side and then swampland on the other side, which was below sea level. So instead of between a rock and a hard place, which is actually the ideal place for a city, <laughs> truly they, they built it between a swamp and sand. Swamp and a soft swamp place. place. <laughs> like a swamp and a quicksand? Which is the worst. And so these conditions meant that basically the city had trouble growing, and it also contributed to the frequent flooding of the city throughout all the years. Well, since I've, like, really studied infrastructure for a long time, I know what happens when people build a city somewhere that has floodplain pro problems and um, really isn't ideal for, like, putting a lot of infrastructure because of its soft, wet soils. They obviously moved New Orleans somewhere else, and this episode is moot because nothing bad ever happened there again. Yeah, because you know that because you, you know a lot about infrastructure. And also children know it because they built sandcastles. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically a sandcastle idea. Only, unfortunately, Megan, I, I have to tell you some bad news. They didn't move the city. Instead, they built levees. <laughs> they, did, they were like, you know, what do the Netherlands people do? The Dutch people, as they're also known. <laughs> so what did those Netherlands people do? The Netherlands people, they built, they, they obviously, um, the Dutch are known for their pretty awesome series of levees and dikes and all the things that they have to um, protect their, their cities. Their because water they are, cities, yeah, yeah. Because they are, a good part of that region is under sea level. The difference between the Netherlands and New Orleans is that um, Amsterdam, like, is that the Netherlands, it's built on different soil, soil that is a lot of bedrock that does have like pretty, it's pretty robust. Whereas New Orleans, as we said before, is swampland and silt and sand yeah. in general. Actually quite terrible to build mm -hmm. anything on. Yeah. yeah. So they start building levees and um, by 1925, <clears throat> the system of levees serving and protecting the city of New Orleans is... 30,000 acres. It's this giant system of canals and drains and pumping stations, all meant to kind of prevent water from infiltrating the city. And now you have this big, dry, manageable area, and people are like, wow, what great, incredible land. And they really start building. Because um, so often what happens is that we build great infrastructure to like control nature. And it just makes the area all the more desirable to build out your city and live in. And they forget that there's a reason why we have all this infrastructure. Yeah. Right? So that we can have this beautiful land. And so they think, oh, we don't need to invest in our infrastructure or upgrade it or maintain it. Like, this land has always been this way. It will naturally be this way. Yeah. I'd say that if our listeners enjoy this rant, they should hear the extended version, which is our Houston episode. <laughs> we just yell us for, like, ever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So anyway, in 1965, there was a really bad flood. A hurricane, I believe. A hurt, yeah. yeah. And, but it caused massive amounts of flooding. 
And so they started this plan called the Barrier Plan, which wasn't that creatively named, which was literally just to build higher barriers and more barriers. And if I recall, this is when the Army Corps of Engineers kind of took over and this started to be their project and their responsibility. Yeah. So how did that go, Megan? They built the barriers. They um, then they uh, did not take care of them the way they ought to. And um, so, you know, you build an infrastructure and 40 years goes by. And if that 40 years is not all about maintaining and managing that infrastructure, then you end up with deferred maintenance. Guys, where's our infrastructure week? (laughs) Seriously, we were promised infrastructure week. We wait every day for it. We're never going to get it. No. So what happens? A hurricane hits, Hurricane Katrina, and it sideswipes the city of New Orleans. So what really happened in New Orleans to cause what we saw to be truly over a decade of devastation? So what was interesting about it is that the hurricane hit it, and that wasn't wasn't the actual damaging part. What happened is that there there was a lot of overtopping of the levee, so they weren't high enough. And so there were 50 levee breaches throughout the city. And so the thing is, because it was built on sand and silt, and then you had this water that went up over it, basically it destabilized it, a kind of a liquefaction, Mm -hmm. like a mini baby liquefaction effect. And so all these levees failed. And so when the levees failed, obviously, the water rushed in. Um, because osmosis. But it wasn't that the hurricane did it, it's that the levee failures were the cause for this. Yeah, so storm surge from the hurricane, but... And it was interesting because the ones that were most damaged were the ones that were using hydraulic fill and had higher silt, peat, and sand content. But there were also other levees that were um, made of, like, filled, of rolled filled, um, and, like, metal. They used a lot of more metal in it. And all of those ones stood up just fine. And when they did the the assessment at the end with the Corps of Engineers, like they didn't have any discernible reasons for why they used one or the other. It was just what they did at it whatever was just, time. Yeah, yeah, there was no rhyme or reason. And honestly, like that sounds outrageous, but if you look at levees nationwide, it really they are made of just random whatever material they had on hand. I mean, some of them are like many, many decades old, 100 years old. And we have levees, like, in our area that are, like, an old car and, like, some dump trash and then, like, a bunch of soil put on it. Like, I wish I was making this stuff. (laughs) Uh, And so, like, it really, it... Yeah, and so you'll see that for Hurricane Katrina, there's lots of conspiracy theories. But the true conspiracy theory is that it was just easier and cheaper to use whatever was on hand... And that they were just kind of doing what they'd always done before. Basically, it was just inept inertia is how this all happened. So now we go to the evacuation part of it. (laughs) Hurricane Hurricane Katrina. Katrina. Um, Hurricanes are not um, like no notice events. We're not talking about like our big regional earthquake where you can't possibly predict it. Like especially with Hurricane Katrina, they knew it was coming for like days and days ahead of time. They declared a natural disaster, like, they declared disaster to the federal government, and the federal government did its disaster declaration three days prior to the hurricane even making landfall in the U.S. Yeah, there was a congressional review that was, it was so interesting because it's by far the most poetic congressional review I've ever read in my entire life. (laughs) But one thing they highlighted was that they said, if 9-11 was a failure of imagination, then Katrina was a failure of initiative. It was a failure of leadership. 
And there was actually, I mean, there was a theoretical exercise, basically, what, like a couple months beforehand? Hurricane Pam. Pam. Yeah, it was an exercise done by emergency management agencies in the region just the year prior to um, Hurricane Katrina that looked at what would happen if this size and, like, ferocity of storm hit the city of New Orleans, like, straight on. It was spookily, like, similar to what actually happened with Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. So it's, they'd, they had imagined it. They had foreseen it. They had kind of known that this could happen. And so many of the critical issues and findings they had in the after action for their, like, Hurricane Pam exercise were the exact same issues they ended up having with Katrina. So they didn't adjust or, like, fix their plans or actually, like... Um, you know, we always call them lessons learned, but they're usually just like lessons stated out loud, forgotten, and like wandered away from. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, I, I, I was just going to say that I thought that maybe the biggest failure was that they had a voluntary evacuation, but they didn't make the evacuation mandatory until 19 hours before Hurricane Katrina hit, even though they'd known about it for 56 hours. Yeah. And it's hard because I feel like um, one of the two of the narratives that like came out of Katrina to kind of cover the fact that the Army Corps of Engineers was ultimately the responsible agency for why everything went so awry was one story was like it was just too big of a storm and like a storm this size was going to be devastating no matter what. And then which just, like, wasn't true because the devastation really came from infrastructure failure. And then the second one was, well, people were told to evacuate and they didn't, and it's because they were, like, arrogant and stupid. But, like, of a city of 450,000 people, 400,000 people evacuated. So, like, even under, like, um, non-mandatory evacuation orders, people evacuated, and the evacuation actually went super well. Like, reverse flow of the freeways just driving everybody out of there it that part went well but you still have like over 50,000 people who either like couldn't evacuate or in the cases of like hospitals will only evacuate under mandatory orders because otherwise like you don't move a bunch of patients just because yeah the remaining people that were there a lot of them were very vulnerable populations yeah and I think that's also what made the whole thing so devastating to us on like a national scale was because we were seeing some of the more vulnerable people, like vulnerable parts of our society, kind of, it looked like they were left there. And, I mean, they weren't necessarily, but at the same time, they hadn't been properly accounted for, and, like, special things had, special adjustments hadn't been made for them, especially in the hospitals. And they were kind of left there. Like, the state requested 700 buses from FEMA for evacuation. They got 100 a week after the request came in. Like, that, those are unacceptably slow numbers. And in researching this, I was like, wow, we do things vastly differently now. And the way, like, we do incident response and the way things are structured and what the national response framework looks like, they're all, like, clearly, they've been rewritten by, like, the failures of Hurricane Katrina. And I think there's also a lot more, um, they incorporate private sectors a lot more into it, and they give people a lot more agency, like, throughout all levels. Yeah. You know, it's expected that you, that, that there's people on the ground there that will, that will have the power to make decisions, whereas... I guess in this situation, they had to keep on waiting for approval from people that were high up and swamped with other requests. So a lot of times they just didn't see the request for several days. 
you think the like the way it's structured now is like, okay, whoever's on the ground and knows the area the best and lives here, like they're the ones who are going to be making the, re the resource request. They know what the area needs. But that that's not how it happened at all during Katrina. Where that actually happened was in the private sector, where like Walmart had employees on the ground who worked at the Walmarts who were just like, yeah, we really need bottled water and just ordered trucks of bottled water. And like Walmart was like, yeah, you guys know what you need. So that's fine. We'll bring the trucks in. Like, like that's the sort of trust that like FEMA is supposed to be putting in the local jurisdiction to manage their own event and disaster. Um, and instead it was just sort of a lot of infighting and um, like battling for control. And I will say that there was, uh, in terms of like response on a personal and pri the private sector level, it, it was actually like a little bit heartwarming to see the way that people did go out of their way to help people. And I think that that's lost a lot in the story of Hurricane Katrina is that they have, as we were talking before, like there's this, this you know, they're like, oh, everybody turned to looting and violence um, in Hurricane Katrina. But I mean, they were looking for food. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the cash registers were working. It's not like there's people at the stores, like, you know, with their credit. I mean, the thing is, in any situation um, where, like, you're kind of in a hazard emergency situation, like, looting is a pretty good idea, actually. I highly recommend you looting. You should be looting. Yeah. And so... No, like, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, if that's your opportunity to get food, to get the supplies that you need, like... It is ridiculous to expect anybody to be like, oh, no, it's not right to go into that store and take that food I can't pay for. Eat, I'd Walmart, rather starve. What will Walmart do? It'll, it'll sink Walmart. No. You go there. If you feel bad, leave them an IOU or something. Yeah. No. Right? No. You post Seattle earthquake. I'll be getting my looting wagon. I'll be, like, breaking into the stores, taking the canned goods, breaking into the fur shop, getting my fur coat, and just hanging out and eating and waiting for the next, like, round of supplies to come in. Yeah, and I'll either have my tactical pen or my Russian shovel, <laughs> and I'm going to be smashing that, probably sh smashing it a couple times to make sure that the it's clean so there's no, like, sharp edges, because I want other people to be, be able to loot after me without cutting themselves. And But I want to get there first. Because that's so thoughtful of you. Yeah, like, I mean, the thing is, like, if you start bleeding profusely to get to the hospital, it's just a horrible deal. It's just better to, like, clean out the whole glass pane. That's my recommendation to you for looting. And just get, like, get the essentials that you need. Get there first before everyone else. Get there whenever everybody's still too shell-shocked from the panic to have mobilized to get to the grocery store. Like, as soon as the shaking stops, you go loot. Hot tips for looting. <laughs> I mean... I'm somewhat joking, but not at all, actually. No, I'm not at all uh, on joking. The, uh, loot. It's to, a good uh, call. But one of the biggest failures of Katrina was our media coverage of it, was these, like, people who'd had a meal that morning who didn't have to worry about where they were going to live day by day, flying a helicopter over and, like, judging and accusing people of looting who literally were living in a disaster wasteland, who needed to do anything to survive. And it's so hard when you're like looking at it from the outside of like everybody else in the United States was not living through a hurricane disaster. They weren't in the waist deep water no. trying to get food for their family and or trying to find some sort of flotation device. Yeah, no, it, it's really hard when you're like all technically in the same country and you're all technically like, oh, we're experiencing the same thing. But like, no, you're experiencing day-to-day -day life and people in New Orleans and Mississippi were experiencing a like, disaster and anything you have to do to live through a disaster like 
I'm not going to shame you for, like, stealing some food from our grocery store or, like, cutting a hole in your roof so you can hang out on the, like, roof and wait for, like, survive or somebody to rescue you. I am much more likely to judge you for not looting than looting. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be like, what were you thinking? Like, we don't know how many days we're going to be here. Yeah. You passed on that? I mean, that's that's on you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, we shouldn't judge them for that. And so they had this whole idea of anarchy and crime in in um, New Orleans, which wasn't quite fair to them. No. And, like, if you look at the Superdome, like, the media coverage of that pretty much made it seem like it was just, like, you know, every man for himself, like, endless murder, just people, like, doing whatever they wanted and complete anarchy inside. But, like... When you look at the actual statistics of what happened, it's like six people died in the Superdome. Four of them died of natural causes, old age or illnesses that they had going in. One person committed suicide. One person died of a drug overdose. This is not like anarchist, like murder everywhere. It was horrible in there. But that isn't—they really painted the people who had stayed behind as like dumb and then, like, criminals. Talking about the hospitals and the areas surrounding those hospitals, um, I mean, they were in a dire situation, and they lost all their communications. They weren't able to contact the extra world. Like, everybody kind of thought that they'd been forgotten because they had no way to communicate with the outside world. And it wasn't they'd been forgotten, but, I mean, they weren't, like, as high on their priority list as maybe they should have been. And so if you imagine that in a hospital full of people who... They should have been the first priority, and they felt like they'd been forgotten. Imagine the people in the areas that were not at the hospital um, that were trying to survive, definitely feeling like they had been forgotten. And the fear that would happen if you were like in a in a flooding area by yourself, it's dark, there's no electricity, and you're just trying to get any kind of help whatsoever. And so I feel like you know there's this whole narrative of of Hurricane Katrina, which isn't fair to the people that were left behind or to the responders. Um, it was just a very difficult situation for everyone. And a lot of people that were saved were saved by other civilians. Yeah. Um, and those people would later moved to Houston for safety and they would later save the people of Houston <laughs> from flooding. So the Cajun army, my favorite people in the world, we should interview one of them. Yeah, a huge number of the people who... Uh like, were evacuated from New Orleans and didn't return, like, moved to Houston, which just, like, is very unfortunate for them. And then watch them all, like, move to L.A. and the earthquake, and they're like, here we are again, having to save the U.S. again. Yeah. Another city. Well, they had failure of communications, as you noted. Mm -hmm. In huge part, that's because even though, like, FEMA and the agencies that came before it have been funding emergency comms, like systems and programs since like the cold war they hadn't been tested they weren't interoperable so like police couldn't talk to fire and they couldn't talk to fema so like everybody was just on their own networks and not sharing that information with each other and then they just had like complete equipment failure and no like backup systems for doing it um oh yeah and so Another one is that, you know, Department of Homeland Security, like FEMA had just been incorporated underneath Department of Homeland Security after 9-11. And so at that time, if you remember, everybody was so focused on terrorism that we kind of forgot about the biggest terrorist of all, Mother Nature, which can inflict so much more damage. And so people just kind of forgot about it. A lot of FEMA's budget and their their agency, like not just the agency, but like the actual power of FEMA had been absorbed 
um, into DHS. And so they needed um, basically for DHS to sign off on a lot of things before they could move and mobilize, which slowed things down. Yeah, but clearly nobody was paying enough attention to like what they were asking for and spending money on because they wasted so much money that could have been used for like really oh, useful things. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they wait. They they ordered like millions of pounds of ice to deliver to these cities, and they sent the cities that they like had designated as holding centers were actually like very far away from the Gulf Coast, so they couldn't actually be retrieved and used for like keeping food cold, uh, cooling bodies, uh, using it for anything you might need refrigeration for. Like two years after Hurricane Katrina, they still had like $100 million in unused ice that they ended up just having to dispose of. They had that ice for two years? Yeah, in the holding locations. And then they were like, well, I guess, what are we going to do with this ice? So they just let it melt? I assume, like, they say they disposed of it, but, like, I assume they threw it in the ocean or something. They, like, flew it up to the Arctic because, like, why not <laughs> Why not make this as expensive as possible? Yeah. There's also a collapse of the local law enforcement, which is just basically they hadn't been properly trained. But also there is this they, – they, they've done studies where they ask critical staff, and that would be your police, that would be your prison wardens, that would be your, like, EMTs. How many of them would show up in a hazard – in a natural hazard situation. And 52% of them said they would not show up. There was a breakdown of our of our base of our law enforcement, of our societal structure. Um, and that can be expected of Hurricane Katrina. That can also be explain, expected of any natural disaster. Because whenever it comes down to it, if people have to choose between leaving their families or going to like, you know, go be a prison warden, their priorities are their family. Um, that's just something to keep in mind for future consideration yeah so before the hurricane there's 450 million 450,000 people now there's 390,000 people yeah over what 15 ish 14 years later yeah there's not only so many fewer people but there are still about 30,000 fewer homes than were there before and 2,000 fewer businesses so like the economic recovery of the region it, it just never fully recovered and that's that's very common like well over half of small businesses close and never reopen after natural disasters in an area. So yeah. so what are the lessons that we can take from this and apply to the future? Well, um, and did they, did, have they learned them for New Orleans specifically since then? We said we would build better levees. And we built, we built the levees for sure. But if you've been following the news at all lately, we had a very close call just earlier this week. Um, because they built the levees for 20 to 22 feet. But in some areas of New Orleans, it was only 18 feet. And before the, the hurricane hit, um, there had been a lot of flooding in the Mississippi. So the, the, the river was already surging at 17 feet. So there was only like a foot of leeway beforehand. Um, they got pretty lucky. They got very lucky. But it could have been another devastating storm. They, we just... It was just pure luck that it wasn't. And this is what happens whenever you build to not the worst case scenario. Yeah. In Army Corps, when they were given the money to rebuild the levees, they reassured everybody like they were now built to withstand a hundred year flood, which, as we've talked about, means every year there's a one percent chance that they're going to have a storm that bad. 
Uh, the problem is that Hurricane Katrina was a 400-year storm. So it's they're not even built to withstand another Katrina. And we've seen that it's, at this point, the way the, our climate is changing, it's not outlandish for us to believe that we could get hit by many more Katrinas. The thing is we need to update our our estimates for what are 100-year, 200-year, 300-year storms because we're not accounting for climate change. Um, there was a city, was it in West, West Virginia, that in three years got hit by three 300-year storms. So obviously that's not a 300-year storm if it happened three times in three years. But the city was decimated every single time. And every time they rebuilt to exactly what they imagined. So I think that just you know, demanding updated climate change assessments for storms would make a huge difference in how we evaluate our infrastructure. Yeah, though, and I hate to say this, the National Academy of Engineering and National Research Council concluded in their reports that there could never be levees and flood walls that are actually large enough or sturdy enough to fully protect New Orleans from another Katrina. Like, you actually can't build your way out of this problem. <laughs> so in that case, so sad. everybody should think about investing in a houseboat. <laughs> just, houseboat's the only solution. When the water comes in, you just float right away. On a hopeful note, however, the way we do emergency management has changed vastly from the way um, response happened to Katrina. So, like, we may not be able to engineer our way out of, like, future storms and problems from New Orleans, I would argue that, like, reversing and, like, slowing our impact on the environment is the best thing we can do for making sure that those, like, 100-year storms aren't happening every single year. Um, but emergency management has changed drastically. To start with, FEMA at the time of Katrina was mostly, like, political appointees. It was it was a position that you were given because the president liked you and, like, here's a role for you to play in this government. And, like, you know, Brownie was not doing a great job. He was doing a terrible job. And he wasn't an emergency manager. He didn't understand disasters or how response works or what that structure looks like for teams. And the heads of FEMA since have all been trained emergency managers. Our current like head of FEMA is was formerly Rhode Island's emergency manager. We've recently had like Texas's, we've had Florida's. And so they're the agency's being run by practitioners who actually do the work and understand the structure in which like emergency management happens. And emergency management is a very like the way we do disaster management, the way locals get to own it, the way that like FEMA provides, like, support and funding, but mostly stays out of, like, bossing people around about how things should be done, like, that's a huge, like, lesson learned. So we, that, that's one of those few times where they actually learned a lesson and integrated <laughs> said lesson and um, have really changed the whole practice of a field of people and how they respond to events, so. Yeah. Oh, also, we should mention that people gave... Um, George Bush, like a lot of like flack about flying over Hurricane Katrina, but not actually going into the area. Megan, why did he do that? Well, um, it's not like me to like give George Bush any like props on anything, but when presidents show up at a disaster site, like it 
is an incredibly huge like drain on the resources of that disaster zone. So like everything that you're doing to do disaster response and like help the people of the area has to shift to like protection of the president and ensuring that where he or she is is safe and like that they will be protected and have like appropriate security and that we can bring media in to like see what's happening in the area. So like all response stops in order to let a president come and like survey the area. So he got a lot of like flack for just flying over and that was seen as like this uncaring move. But um, it actually was probably better for the folks on the ground who were trying to actually go in and do response and didn't want to be part of like a media photo call. So um <clears throat> and it's hard because I think people like mentally take a lot away from seeing their president like come and survey the area, you know, and, and it's been common practice. Um, Obama went to Hurricane Sandy. Trump went to Puerto Rico and threw paper towels at them. Uh, and so, useful. <laughs> you know, like, like paper towels aren't even they're the least useful survival things, too. Well, maybe for like sopping up all the water that's flooded your town. Like, you know, you're in a low lying area like New Orleans. Should they have gone and just looted as many uh, paper towels as possible and just soaked up all the water and <laughs> sent it on its way. Might Could well this have a, worked? Might have been like super strong mobs that maybe that would have been just as effective. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, geez. Okay. Okay. Our mini episode is done. Yeah, if you have any more questions about Hurricane Katrina, hit us up on Instagram at This Is How We Die Podcast or on the Facebook group because there's so, so many things that we um Go on to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. Uh, do you have one to share with us today, Megan? Yes, this one is by Alexandra Mars, and it says, Informative and Entertaining. I'll be honest, I was a little bit leery of this title, but this podcast is lighthearted, entertaining, and informative. Megan and Megan have a great dynamic. Aw. And Aww. seem to have an endless supply of knowledge. Oh. Oh, it's so Ranging honored. beyond survival skills. This is so nice. I'm definitely a fan and so happy they started this. Thank you, Alexandra Mars. That's so nice. This is as close as I can get to, like, my annual request that my birthday just be my funeral. And I get to hear all about, like, how much people loved me and how wonderful I was and, like, how much they'll miss me. Oh, you totally want to do a Mark Twain. Yeah, like why? Yeah, yeah, like uh, Huckleberry Finn, right? He got to see his. It funeral. wasn't. It wasn't. Was it? It wasn't Huckleberry Finn. It was. He was friends with Tom Sawyer. It was Tom Sawyer who faked his death. Oh, okay. Yeah, Huckleberry Finn was his friend, though. Um, no, see, I want that. Like that is the birthday party I want. Megan's wake, where I get to hear all about how wonderful I was. Um, uh, this is my dream party to throw, where I fake your death. Yeah. And then you come back to life, but we have. I could make this happen for you. Yes. See, I I just want to hear all about how much people miss me and how wonderful I was. No, and, but like... And, it, and the thing is, it'd be so easy to figure that too because you always go hiking. And for girls going hiking by themselves, that's normally how girls like disappear and die. Not normally how girls disappear No, and it die. is. Whenever no, I was... No, very few no, women no, disappear and die no, while hiking. No, wait, that's, that's widely publicized. <laughs> no, no, no. Like the experts say if you want to fake your death, the best way is to go into the, is going to go into the mountains. And just disappear. This is not because the point you, I was arguing. People always like say it's like drowning is good. The thing is, if you drown, eventually your body will decompose and come up to the top anyway. But like with with hiking, a lot of girls go missing. Nobody knows, and they just assume okay, that they're again, dead. Not a no, lot of girls go missing. Not a hiking. lot. We can pull the numbers. A more not than thing. A lot. And like either they're faking their death or like somebody found them and did something terrible to them. 
So it would be easy because you hike a lot to fake your death. That's what I'm saying. Well, according to you, I hike a lot, and so my death is imminent. I mean, I'm, that's why you shouldn't go hiking alone, which you don't, so you'll be fine. Well, I do. You hiking by yourself? Yeah, or just with my baby. Do you at least bring a tactical pen? <laughs> or or my Russian shovel? Yeah, I just bring my shovel. I mean, <laughs> if I can't get the drop on whoever's trying to attack me, at least I make it easier for them to dig my grave. I always thought of it like somebody was like, what are you going to give me for a birthday? What are you going to give me for a birthday? I'm like, a shovel so I can kill you with it and then bury you with it. And I laughed for like days. I just still laugh thinking about it. It was my cleverest dancer ever. And you should have seen his face. <laughs> All right. I didn't see that coming. All right, we should end. We should probably take this mic off.